Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Pung Shepard, author of the new novel, The Cartographers. Pung, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, if someone listening hasn't yet heard about your new novel, The Cartographers, how would you describe the novel? I would describe it as a, in a word, it's basically a novel about map making and family secrets. Uh, so it's a mystery and it follows a woman named Nell. She's a young cartography scholar and she discovers after the death of her brilliant but estranged father, who is also a cartography scholar, that a seemingly kind of like worthless or insignificant map that he has hidden away in his things actually contains a very deadly secret. And so she sets out to uncover both what the map and her father have been hiding for decades. That sounds great. I'm curious, do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write The Cartographers? Oh, I do. It actually was something that kind of haunted me for about 10 years, this idea, because it's actually based on a real story about a real-life cartography mystery that happened to a map very similar to the one in the book. And I heard the story, I mean, really, it was about a decade ago, and was just fascinated with it ever since. And I didn't realize I was going to write about it at first, you know, when mm -hmm. I when I first heard the story. But when I was still thinking about it, you know, four or five, six years on, I thought, okay, I guess, <laughs> I guess it's, you know, the <laughs> time to try. And And I'm curious, what kind of research did you do about cartography as you were thinking about and working on the novel? It was a lot of looking up um, very specific maps because what I what I wanted the book to feel like was, uh, because it does have some fantastical stuff that happens in it. So there's a little bit of magic and a little bit of strange, you know, kind of unexplained stuff. But I wanted it to feel really, really possible. And so what I ended up doing was every time I needed to mention a location in the book or a map, and there are like a lot of maps mentioned, I mm -hmm. wanted it to be that if readers paused and they went and they Googled that map or that location, they would actually come up and you could see that it was a real map from history and you could find out what museum it was at or see, you know, a thumbnail image of it or something to give the book that like extra, you know, that maybe this is kind of possible feeling. <laughs> So I'm curious, what was it about that story that you heard that kind of fascinated you and kind of, and it stayed in your mind? So the story is about, um, so there's a, there's a concept, there's a cartography term called phantom settlements or paper towns, or sometimes they're called trap streets. And they are basically, um, they're terms that mean errors on maps, but they're intentional errors planted on purpose by the map makers. And the point is to catch anyone who might be stealing your work. Because if you put a little error, like a phantom settlement on your map, so I don't know, a short dead end road that isn't really there, or a tiny mountain out in the wilderness that doesn't actually exist, the land is flat there. If that error appeared on someone else's map, you would know that they'd copied your work because the only way that that error could be there is if they, they did that. Because since it's an error, there's no way they could have encountered it if they were doing their own surveys, you know? Sure. And so the true story is about a phantom settlement like that. It's from, uh, it happened in the early 1900s. And there was, uh, there were these two small time map makers who were working in New York and they were convinced that much bigger companies like Rand McNally were stealing their data and using it to make maps faster and catch up, you know, in like some, some sectors of map making that they, they currently didn't have a product line. So they were just stealing 
these two little guys' maps. And so the two map makers, they planted a phantom settlement on one of their maps and thought, you know, okay, this will be, you know, how we'll catch them. And then about a year later, uh, Rand McNally came out with an edition of its map of the same geographical area, which was part of rural upstate New York. And it was where these two map makers had put a tiny town that didn't exist right in the middle of nowhere. So while they were out surveying, they had seen this huge blank expanse of land. And they thought, this is perfect. This is where we'll put a town because it's in the middle of nowhere. Nobody lives here. No one's going to accidentally drive through this place and get confused. So they made up a town. They named it with a combination of their initials and they put it on the map there. And then a year later, when Rand McNally's map came out, they spotted that tiny town on Rand McNally's map. And so they thought, well, that's the proof we need. Obviously, they're copying us. So they sued them and they went to court and they said, Rand McNally's copying us. We can prove it because this town that's on Rand McNally's map, we made it up. It's not real. And Rand McNally said, actually, the town is real. And so these two guys, right? <laughs> yeah. So the court case, you know, paused. These two guys got in the car with a couple of journalists and their lawyers, and they drove out to the middle of nowhere in rural upstate New York to see, you know, this empty land, take pictures of it and bring the evidence back to court and win. But when they got there, there actually was an entire small flourishing town. And it was named exactly the same thing that these two men had named it from their <laughs> own initials. So, <laughs> Yeah. It was this, I mean, it's this incredible, really strange real life mystery. And, um, you know, sometimes you hear a story like that and you really just can't stop thinking about it. Sure. I, I can understand that. Mm -hmm. So so what was your initial writing journey that led you to writing and getting your first novel published? I, it was a long one because I was one of those writers who always wanted to write ever since I was a kid. And, you know, when I was five years old, I was making my own little books and, you know, giving them to my mom to read. And I wrote all through elementary school and middle school and, and even high school. Um, but when I got to university, I had spent my whole uh, childhood saying, you know, as soon as I'm an adult, as soon as I get to university and nobody can tell me what to do, I'm going to take a bunch of creative writing classes and I'm going to become a writer. And then I got to university and I promptly chickened out. Because <laughs> it was just too scary. And I, at that point, had probably started 10 billion novels, but I had never finished any of them because I was a kid and I, I didn't have that mm -hmm. discipline yet. And I didn't, I didn't yeah. know how to build a story big enough that could go for more than a couple of pages. So I had, you know, 10 billion first pages of novels, but, but no, not even one completed big piece of work. So I chickened out. I took other classes. I ended up graduating and then I went to grad school for a totally unrelated field. And I worked um, a corporate job for a couple of years until I realized that even though I was, that I found the work interesting, I just wasn't happy and it wasn't really what I wanted to be doing. And I thought if I keep doing this any longer, I'll probably never try. And so I was I was very rash about it. I was very I didn't know I don't know how to do anything halfway. So instead of just starting to try to write again, I ended up quitting my job and I went and I got um, an MFA in creative writing from NYU. And I was trying to, you know, I just threw myself in the lifestyle. I because at the program you you have deadlines and you have other people's manuscripts that you're reading, and so you really are writing full time. And so I just I really went for it, and um, you know, luckily I. Uh, it turned out that I could do it. So, and what was your MFA experience like at NYU? It was wonderful, and I think 
for all of the obvious reasons, like, yes, I had, you know, brilliant professors who gave, you know, these amazing craft lectures and we read really, really, you know, instructed books and all my, you know, um, my, my colleagues were so talented and we were all so, you know, excited and dedicated about what we were doing. But I think it was also really valuable because it was the first time that I felt like I was given permission to make writing the first priority in my life. Because a lot of times what happens for your first book is you are trying to write it on the side after your day job or, you know, around your kids or on the weekends or something. And so everybody in your life sees it as a kind of hobby. And so do you. And it's really hard. It can be very hard to give it, you know, the the amount of time or the dedication or the importance that it really does require. And so the MFA allowed me, it kind of gave me the courage to be able to say to people in my life, that, like, this is the primary thing that I'm doing. And this is very important because it lended, I don't know, this air of legitimacy to it kind of because you're in grad school, you're, you're you know, studying writing. So what was your writing process when you were working on the cartographers? Did you outline the novel extensively or did you just drive, dive into the narrative? What was that like? Yes, I'm definitely a diver. I, <laughs> yeah, I don't, if you have, I'm not sure if you've had writers on who've talked about the difference between plotting and pantsing. Yes. yes okay. Okay. So I am a hundred percent a pantser. I pants everything that I write and it's, um, I am so envious of writers who can outline things or who have a plan going in. It just looks so, I don't know, easy and way less stressful, but I've never been able to write like that. And so all of my drafts just start, I can really only discover the story through writing it. And so I just have to write really, really huge, messy drafts that go in a bunch of directions. And then only once I have the full thing, can I look back and say, okay, what is, what is really going on here? What are my characters really trying to say? What am I trying to do? And and what does that look like? I mean, are you are you throwing away a lot? Yes. So in not the process. Yeah, not for everything, but for mm -hmm. the cartographers especially, I would say that the length of the book, which is about four hundred pages, I also have exactly the same amount of pages that I threw out. It was I have the most extra pages that didn't make it in for the cartographers of anything else I've ever written. And it, yeah, it was quite a journey. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, have you started working on a new novel? Yes, I'm about halfway through the first draft of my third book. That's great. Well, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories and novels? I would say, and this is going to sound bad or discouraging at first, but I don't mean it in that way, so I'll I'll explain. But I, what I would say is I wish that someone had told me how hard it is to write a novel, like how just it feels impossibly hard. And what I mean by that is not to discourage anybody. What I mean is that I think a lot of times in our society, we assume of people like athletes or scientists or linguists mm -hmm. that if you're really good at something, it's really easy to do what you're doing. And writing is not like that. Even for the most brilliant of writers who have written, you know, a number of books before, they all say that it's really, really hard every time you sit down to make this story out of nothing. And so when I started writing, I had assumed the same thing that if writing, if I was good at writing, it would be easy. And then when it wasn't easy, I misunderstood. And I thought maybe that just means I'm not supposed to be a writer, or maybe I'm not a good writer. And I had to fight through that 
a lot longer, I think, to discover the truth that no, it's just that hard for everybody. And if it's hard, it doesn't mean that you're not meant to do it. It just means congrats, you're a writer (laughs) is what it means. (laughs) Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. And and I'm curious, how did you fight through that? Because... Uh, I'm sure you're probably aware that there are a lot of people who get to that point, whether they're doing an MFA or just doing it on, on their on the side while they're working, they get to that point and they give up because it seems kind of insurmountable to get from a messy draft or what have you to something that people would pick up, pick up in a bookstore. Yeah, I think it's really about, it's just this feeling that even if you are having a really hard time in the draft, it's not going the way you want, or you're not even sure that this book is the book that you're supposed to finish. There's just this feeling that you can't stop anyway, whether it's that specific book or just writing in general. Because even if you trunk a novel, which does happen, Mm -hmm. if somebody asks you to just give it up and stop writing, if you just feel like you couldn't, and even if no one was ever going to read your work, you would still find yourself writing stories for yourself. I, I think that really means something. Sure. Well, what novels have you read recently that you enjoyed? Oh, that's the, do they have to be out yet? That's the hard thing no, about. No. I mean, it, it could be, okay. it could be things that are, you know, that are about to come out or, or what okay. have you. Yeah, I am. Um, <laughs> what, what have I read recently? So one, one book that I think it's coming out in August, it's called Babel and it's by uh, R.F. Kuang and it's kind of a fantasy it's set in, I think, 1850s Oxford at Oxford University. And it's about, oh gosh, it's so epic. But it's it's about a department within the the English building, I think, or the, the languages and literatures building where it's the translation department. And it turns out that there are some translators there who can do actual magic by translating words from one language to another. And so at first it just seems like this really cool fantasy that's that's all about word magic, but it ends up being about so much more than that. You know, it's about um, politics and culture and society and identity and colonialism and, um, you know, like what language means to the person who's speaking it versus the person who's listening to it. And it's just, 
it's so deep and it's so beautiful. And it's also just a really exciting story. That's great. Anything else? I also read, well, there's, so there's a trilogy that's in progress. I think the first one's called Black Sun. It's by Rebecca Roanhorse. And the second one I think comes out, it might even be this week. It's called Fevered Star. And it's really, it's just so much fun. It's an epic fantasy and it's set Mm -hmm. in, um, I think it's set in pre-Columbian, kind of pre-Columbian Central America inspired setting. And it's got these, you know, there are, um, you know, various societies that are at war with each other and there's a seafaring society and there's a very kind of traditional magical society. And then there's one group of warriors who ride these crows that are the size of helicopters basically into battle, which is just, you know, <laughs> so cool. Yeah. Who doesn't want a That's giant sentient crow? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that one's fun. That's by Rebecca Roanhorse. And then then another one that I'm about halfway through, I think it comes out in June. It's called The Measure by Nikki Ehrlich. And it's about, it's set in the very, very near future, like maybe even tomorrow. And for everyone who's over the age of 18, one day there arrives upon their doorstep a little box. And in the box is a length of string. And everyone's string is a little bit different. But since everyone in the world over the age of 18 has gotten one of these boxes at exactly the same time, everyone is understandably very freaked out. And scientists quickly discovered that the string, the length of string in the box, corresponds exactly to how much of your life you have left. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So basically <laughs> overnight, what has happened is every, every adult in the world has found out exactly how much longer they have left to live. And it's just so fascinating. Wow, that sounds fascinating. Yeah. Where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your novels and your new novel, The Cartographers? Yeah, I have a website, punkshepherd.com. And in general, I'm I'm sort of on Twitter. I'm sort of on Instagram. I can definitely be be found there or chatted with there. Sure. Well, again, we've been speaking with Pung Shepard, author of the new novel, The Cartographers. The novel is available now, so go buy a copy. And Pung, thanks for doing this interview. Yeah, thanks so much. I had a great time. Great. Thanks a lot. In the dim light of her desk's single bulb lamp, the map nearly glowed. From Morrow, it was called. It had been created in 1450 AD by a Camaldolese monk of the same name, who had designed it in his small cartography studio in the monastery of St. Michael, in that glittering, floating city of Venice. Fra Morrow had researched his map by interviewing merchants traveling through the area from afar, which allowed him to depict the known world of the time with far greater accuracy than those cartographers who had come before him. Even to this day, the Fra Morrow map was considered one of the finest pieces of medieval cartography in existence. Gently, Nell traced her gaze over the painted gold circular frame, looking for blemishes, inconsistencies in color, errant lines. The Fra Moro map was also unique in that it was drawn opposite to most other world maps. It oriented the south at the top of its design, rather than the north. Simply put, it was nothing short of a masterpiece. If she'd been at a workstation in the conservation lab of the New York Public Library, with the map carefully installed onto a drafting table and her personal assortment of custom restoration tools laid out beside her, 
she would have chosen her graphic knife edge to gently cut away a frayed edge of the vellum or faintly scrape back a layer of too boldly restored ink. She would have delicately touched the leg of the repainted T in the Antarcticus of the map's lower right legend to nick the most minuscule width away so that it matched the original letter beneath it more perfectly. Instead, she simply pressed print and went to go retrieve another copy of the map from the clunky machine. The Fra Moro map, the real Fra Moro map, was on permanent exhibit in the city of its creation, in Venice's Biblioteca Nazionale Marciana. The diagrams before her were no more than a stack of cheap facsimiles. What she was doing was not what she had trained her entire life to do. Conservation and research on priceless ancient pieces of art in a hermetically sealed museum laboratory. She was adding flourish, nonsense weathering marks and fading to budget scans of those masterpieces at a cramped, sagging desk in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, and then printing them out by the batch to be sold to casual enthusiasts to add a bit of academic flair to their decor. Nell Young was not a scholar of cartography anymore. She was a design technician at Classic Maps and Atlases, trademark, we can make any map. Classic, as her boss called it for short, was the antithesis of conservation. Thousands upon thousands of reproductions of real ancient or rare works of art, mass printed onto modern acid-free paper, then mass crinkled or mass aged or mass hand-decorated with anachronistic symbols, all able to be ordered with two-day shipping direct to a doorstep and hung in a living room that same afternoon. It was also Nell's only paycheck. It hadn't always been this way. Once, she'd been staring at a bright future ahead of her. She'd attended the best schools, successfully defended her PhD dissertation, and landed an internship at none other than the awe-inspiring main branch of the New York Public Library in its prestigious conservation department. She was on her way to someday matching, perhaps even surpassing the illustrious reputation of her father, one of the NYPL's most celebrated scholars. People had even started to whisper about the new Dr. Young in the halls as she passed. Once, for a brief moment, She had been just a little bit famous in that tiny, overhead fluorescent lit, cluttered world of endless stacks and musty archive drawers. Then the junk box incident had happened. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.